Welcome back. This is Sam. And this is Corrine, and we are two Onk Ducks. Today's episode is going to be focusing on what you need to know regarding thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura, or known as TTP for the rest of this episode. This will include your high-yield facts on the mechanism of TTP, the presentation, the diagnostic workup, and how we treat TTP. So this is definitely high yield when you're on heme consults and also on the exams. So before we dive into TTP, what are some examples of thrombotic microangiopathies, also known as TMA? Outside of TTP, I always think of hemolytic uremic syndrome or HUS. This typically happens in kids and we'll briefly fly through it at the end to here. Also atypical HUS, which I think we see more in the adult realm than I will talk about at the end of this episode. In the pregnant realm, we have HELP syndrome, which stands for hemolytic anemia, elevated liver enzymes, low platelets. And the treatment for this, as we do in a lot of things in gynecology, is to deliver the baby. Medications can also cause TMAs. These are medications such as VEGF inhibitors like bevacizumab, gemcitabine, mitomycin C, also other medicines like clopidogrel and cyclosporin. Vasculitis can cause TMAs, and we think about this in our lupus and autoimmune populations. Yeah, even when we counsel patients uh, for gemcitabine, like our bladder cancer patients, uh, we make sure to mention the possible but very low risk of TTP. So what is TTP? The mechanism of TTP is a deficiency of ADAMS-13. This is the von Willebrand factor cleaving protein. It well, deficiency in this leads to the lack of von Willebrand factor cleaving. Having these large von Willebrand factors floating in that vascular system results in activation, adhesion, and aggregation of platelets along the vessel walls. And this gives us peripheral destruction of red blood cells as well as platelets. Yeah, this comes up, the mechanism of TTP, I feel like, came up again and again from med school through residency through fellowship, Uh, so important, important to remember. And so what are some of the clinical characteristics of TTP? The big one is increased thromboconsumptive thrombocytopenia. So this is the utilization and the destruction of platelets within our system. We also see schistocytes or red blood cell fragments on blood smears. This should be underlined, bolded, highlighted. You should know if they're schistocytes, you should be thinking, could this be TTP or another TMA? TTP also has acute disorders with multi-organ dysfunction and microangiopathic hemolytic anemias, also known as MAHA, and thrombocytopenias. The classic pentad of TTP is MAHA, thrombocytopenia, renal insufficiency, and neurologic abnormalities, as well as fever. Other symptoms can be more vague with the presentation of a TTP patient, and that can be abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, weakness. We make the diagnosis of TTP based on having MAHA plus thrombocytopenia. If we waited for the other symptoms to present, the mortality of TTP would be through the roof. Yeah, one of the mnemonics to remember the pentad is FART-N. So F is fever, A is anemia, R is renal, uh, T is thrombocytopenia, and N is neurologic. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Love love me a good potty joke. (laughs) So since you mentioned mortality, what is the mortality with TTP? 
If left untreated, it's high. It's 80 to 90% mortality. Thankfully, plasmapheresis has decreased this mortality to 20 to 30%. And less than 2% of patients die now with really good diagnostic, um, we, clinical diagnosis, and quick treatment. The primary cause of death for TT patients is concurrent MIs. So these are cardiovascular risks, um, which makes sense if you think about the mechanism. Yeah, it's amazing what a difference we've made uh, with our treatments for this disease. And so what causes TTP? There's two big causes that can drive behind what, what's precipitating the TTP. One is congenital, and this is Upshaw-Shulman syndrome. This is the minority of TTP cases, and it's 10 to 30% of TTP patients. The majority of TTP patients are what we see in the adult realm and on consults and on our board exams, and it's idiopathic. So that is the development of an antibody to the Adams T13, and that's 87 to 90% of these TTP cases. Yeah. Oh, I remember I, we had a upshow Shulman syndrome uh, when I was on him consults, I think in my second year of fellowship. And so you're on, you're the fellow on call and um, someone calls you from the ICU or the ED and they're suspecting TTP. So what labs are you going to tell them to obtain? The golden standard for diagnosing TTP is the Adams T13 level. And the cutoff you need to know is having less than 10% Adams T13 activity is pathognomonic for TTP. In the real world, this is always a send out lab. So you can tell them to send it in the middle of the night, but you're not going to get it immediately. So unfortunately, what you need to do is you have to look at the blood smear and look at the whole clinical picture. Again, this is a clinical diagnosis. The Adam C13 just confirms it really. Harvard developed a risk stratification for how high the probability of TTP is. This is called the plasmic score. And the labs that go into that are having platelets less than 30,000, hemolysis labs such as bilirubin greater than two, reticulocyte count greater than two and a half percent, undetectable haptoglobin and an elevated LDH, having an MCV less than 90 and INR less than 1.5, so thinking less DIC, more TTP, and a creatinine less than two, which in atypical HUS, it's typically greater than two. Two things that they have on the plasmic score that actually go against the diagnosis of TTP and maybe thinking something else is causing the process is having an active malignancy or a history of stem cell or solid tumor organ transplant. So those are the big labs that we send out, but looking at the blood smear is really what you're going to end up doing in the middle of the night. Yeah, I would always try to calculate the plasmic score when I was on call at night um, to determine what the risk was uh, in terms of deciding whether I needed to go review the smear or not. Um, and so once we are highly suspecting TTP, how do we treat it? Start plasmapheresis immediately. Um, this is number one thing. If you have a high clinical suspicion, if you've looked at the smear, you start plasmapheresis. You can ask questions later that Adams T13 will be cooking in the lab. You continue until patients have platelet recovery or some guidelines say for at least five days. The other thing that we can think about in treating TTP outside of plasmapheresis is immunosuppression. If this is driven by an antibody against Adams T13, can we suppress that production with things like anti-CD20 drugs, cytoxin, and prednisone? 
There's also ways to block the platelet aggregation. So in inhibiting the von Willebrand factor platelet interaction, and that's a medicine called caplicizumab. And for congenital TTP, we treat this with plasma infusion and recombinant Adams T13. For recurrent idiopathic TTP, we can use things like mycophenolytic acid, bortezomib, and also aspirin for stroke prevention. Because again, the big thing driving the mortality in these patients is cardiovascular issues. And so they, patients who have a history of TTP, need lifelong cardiovascular screening and risk stratification. Yeah, that's extremely important uh, in terms of knowing to start plasmapheresis immediately and knowing other medications um, if they're refractory or relapsed. And so since we talked about TTP, can we quickly go through HUS? Definitely. So HUS mostly happens in children. So I think about this more in the pediatric realm, not the adult realm. The cause of HUS is food contamination. So things like meat, spinach, fruit, um, contaminated by E. coli 0157H7 or E. coli 0104H4 strains that produce the sugar toxin. The way we diagnose this is we get a stool PCR. The symptoms typically is bloody diarrhea and frank renal failure from kidney inflammation presenting with the TMA. Morbidity and mortality is pretty high with 50% of patients having permanent renal failure and needing lifelong dialysis and a 25% mortality without the treatment of plasmapheresis. So the treatment, just like TTP, is to treat the infection because that's what's driving it and plasmapheresis. So get people started on plasmapheresis and figure out the cause later. And so what about atypical HUS? So this is different. This is different than TPTP and HUS. Um, and I think we see this more commonly in the adult world. And we are always scratching our heads or splitting hairs of is it TTP or is it HUS? or atypical HUS. Atypical HUS is driven by complement protein defects. Most commonly, this is factor H, I, membrane complement protein, or MCP, loss of function in TM, C3, or a gain of function in factor B. The diagnosis for atypical HUS is really exclusion, and we compare that with TTP to see which is more likely. So thrombocytopenia in atypical HUS is generally less severe than in TTP. So usually the plates are greater than 30,000 in atypical HUS. The kidney function, on the other hand, is generally worse than, that, than it is in TTP. So the creatinine is greater than two. And the treatment for atypical HUS is attacking the complement or the actual problem with an anti-C5 therapy, which is ecoluzumab. We give this weekly for four weeks, then we space it out to every two weeks forever. Or we also have a new drug that is given every eight weeks, and it's still an anti-C5, and that is ravalizumab. And one extremely high yield point for ecolizumab is that it does predispose to meningococcal infections. So you have to make sure that patients are vaccinated and um, you can also consider prophylactic antibiotics um, if they are not vaccinated. Um, you'll also see this used in PNH, paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria. So that was a great overview, Sam. So what are our key takeaways for TMAs? 
Schistocytes being seen on the smear. So you need to have a very high clinical suspicion based on the blood smear and the labs, as well as the clinical picture for these TMAs, specifically TTP, HUS, and atypical HUS. You should start plasmapheresis immediately. This is what reduces that morbidity and mortality of these otherwise devastating diseases. It can be for five days or maybe until platelet recovery, but the most important thing is you start that plasmapheresis immediately. Sending out labs, so things like the Adams T13, the shigatoxin PCR on the stool, and think about other causes for the TMAs. Is there medication? Is the person pregnant? So we're thinking help syndrome. And do they have lupus or is this, could this possibly be free from vasculitis? If the Adams T13 comes back low, less than 10%, you have the diagnosis of TTP and you continue the plasmapheresis. If it comes back positive for shigatoxin in the stool, it's HUS and you continue the plasmapheresis. If both of those come back negative, you start thinking about atypical HUS. So you stop the plasmapheresis and you start ecolizumab. You can also decide this um, prior to the labs coming back, if you think clinically and you use those lab values um, to really go between the two. And so I think those are the big high yield points for the, t- the three TMAs that we went over today. Yeah, that was a great overview. I mean, this is something that comes up again and again, uh, both in internal medicine and in hematology, um, and often involves a multidisciplinary approach. So I know for my institution, you know, we had to get the blood bank involved um, to do the plex and things like that or transfusion medicine. And so as always, thank you for listening. Um, hope that everyone is um, having good luck with studying and please feel free to reach out to us with any suggestions on our Instagram to OncDocs. Yep. Happy studying guys and good luck. We'll see you guys next week. <laughs>